Turn to Daniel chapter 6. Maybe the best known story of Daniel. Verse 1, Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over though were three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. This then, Daniel, became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. Then these men said, we shall find no ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came to agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whosoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Jesus, we are grateful for a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. The Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the Moseses, the Esthers, the Hannahs, the Ruths, and Daniel. They give us wisdom on this incredible, majestic life that we've been grafted into. And so we ask 
this morning that you would give to each of us wisdom to walk out correctly the faith that we've been given and brought into. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So one of my favorite stories that helps maybe introduce what I'm trying to talk about, and I've said it before, but I've never said this story in this building, so <laughs> gives me a fresh start on things. <laughs> it happened uh, quite a few years ago. I was over at the coast with my family and some extended family, and my brother-in-law was going out fishing, and he would go out the Chetco River into the ocean, and he would fish in an eight-foot dinghy which is very fun to go fishing in. It's called a Walker Bay. And so he was headed out and he goes, Matt, do you want to go with me? I said, sure. So I grabbed my rod and I jumped in this eight-foot dinghy with my brother-in-law. And we start to go out the Chetco River and then head out into the ocean. And as he's rowing out, he goes, oh man, I only have one life jacket. I said, no problem, I'll take it. <laughs> and then he said this, don't worry, I have never wrecked this boat. I should have jumped in right then. We're doomed. Man, never say that, right? So we go out, we go fishing, we catch some fish, and then we're coming back in, and I was actually rowing at that point, and normally you can row kind of into the Chetco, and there's no waves then. You know, the waves build and they crash on the, on the shore, but in the Chetco, they don't do that. So I'm trying to row up the Chetco again to get out, but the tide was going out, and when the tide goes out, it empties that whole bay, and it's just a, it's a good current. So I'm just, huh, huh, huh. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't make it up. So he's like, no problem. We're going to go in on the beach. So he kind of row. I, I said, I'm not doing that. So he rows over there. You're the guy that's never dumped this boat. You're doing it. So, so we kind of row over there and we're right at the beachfront. You know, all these people are there in their cars, all the old people walking their dogs, beachfront motel, all the RVs pointed out, you know. So we row over there and you can see people stopping and doing this. Hmm. That does not look safe. One of those guys does not have a life jacket on. This will be fun. So they just kind of stop and they're pausing and you go backwards, you know. So I'm up in the bow of the boat and J Jake, my brother-in-law, is just trying to time the waves. And he's like, okay, let's go. So he starts to just start, just rowing like crazy. And I see this wave building and building. I'm like, Jake, Jake, Jake. And then it just starts to lift the boat up. And I literally have the bow of the boat in my chest and I'm standing on the front of that seat, leaning over, trying to keep it from going over. It didn't work. So over we go. Jake with his life jacket just gets swept back out. He's gone. And it's me trying to grab fishing rods and the bow of the boat. And, and now I'm trying to swim. And every once in a while, I'll just touch a little bit of sand and like try to kick off. And then I'm yelling, help, help. <laughs> And my family is right up there on the beach, like literally a hundred feet from me, playing frisbee. They don't even notice it. They're just like, nice catch. Ah, and then the old people with their dogs, they're like lifting up their dog. Don't look at this. They might die. Oh no. They're like walking away. I'm like, really? Right? So I did make it, obviously. <laughs> my message is pretty simple how not to get shipwrecked. I know a lot of people that they go out strong and they got it and they're on it, but man, at some point their faith just gets shipwrecked. And you look in the Bible and a guy once took all the characters of the Bible and he said, 
only one in ten finish well. We have a man named Daniel who is one of those one in tens. Because if you read through the Bible, almost every person has this massive failure. Abraham with his faith. Moses with his temper. David with his lust. Solomon with a thousand women, right? They all have their like, oh, I can't believe he did that. Not Daniel. And in chapter 6, we get the final wave, a tsunami that the enemy was hoping would finally dash the faith of Daniel. But it doesn't. It's brilliant. You can read ahead if you want, if you don't know the end of the story. And all I want to try to do is say, what is faith then? And, and when I listed them out, I came up with about 10 in just this chapter. We're just going to do a few. And each one is faith is. So first of all, based on Daniel, faith is tension. Faith is tension. Look at verse 5. Look what it says. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Faith is tension. It is the faith of Daniel that actually gets him into trouble, right? He does everything right. He lives a righteous life. He prays. He doesn't compromise in any way. And here in chapter 6, it is his faith that gets him into trouble. Sometimes I think we look at faith as a way that you get whatever you want, right? If you just had enough faith, God would open the storehouses of heaven and pour them down on you. Name it and claim it. Believe it and be it. See it and seize it, right? That's a way of looking at faith, that if you could just muster up enough faith, then it would give you this power and you could get the job that you want. You could get the spouse that you want. You could get the money that you want. You could get whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? There is a way of looking at faith like that. The only problem with that is the Bible and what it turns God into. When you say that's what faith is, God becomes your errand boy And if he does things right, maybe you will tip him 10%. That's what faith becomes. But Matt, I've heard preachers preach like that. And they use scripture. What about that? Here's what happens. I call it selective scriptural syndrome. And it's this grabbing and camping on one verse or one idea in the Bible at the expense of other verses in the Bible, that you don't balance that one verse with the other verses. And when you do that, it's very dangerous to your faith. I'll give you kind of an example of this. This was my little girls many, many years ago. My older two were five and seven. Wife was gone in Portland. And I took them to the Family Fund Center, which is not financially fun. You can drop some money there quick. So I go there, and I only had brought with me 40 bucks. We spent the 40 bucks in like five minutes. You know, it's just gone. So I looked at Carissa and Isabel, and I told them, hey, daddy's all out of money. We're going home. And both of them looked at me like I was the village idiot. And they put their hands on their hips, and they said, daddy, just take your card and go to the machine and get more. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. They're learning from their mother. This is crazy. <laughs> 
Got to make it up to her now. <laughs> what are they missing in that? You got to make a deposit before you can make a withdrawal. They see half the story. They just see, well, mom, dad just puts their card in this machine and money comes out. They don't understand the other half of the equation that you have to put money in there first. That's like faith. Faith has that tension to it, that there's got to be two sides to real, true faith. And we already know that life has, in order for life to be lived right, it must be under tension. Like psychologists say this, that everybody needs certainty. They need to be safe. They need to be secure. They need to have comfort. But then all psychologists say people also need uncertainty, they need variety. They need change. They need new ideas and new experiences. Those are intention, and when they're in the right kind of tension, life is brilliant. Faith requires that same kind of tension, that we need to know the John 10.10s, that Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and it more abundantly. But you better temper that with John 16.33, where Jesus says, in this world, you shall suffer persecution. We should know the Ephesians 3.20s, now unto him that's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think for his glory. But you better balance that with 2 Timothy 3.10 that says, all that desire to live godly lives shall suffer persecution. Anyone have that one underlined? Probably not, Right? We love 1 Corinthians 2.9 that says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love him. And while that's true, so is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 that says this, hey, don't think it's strange when you're hit with the fiery darts of the enemy as if some weird thing happened to you. But know this, just as we are partakers in the sufferings of Christ, we shall be partakers in the glory of Christ. It's balance. It's tension. It's what Daniel knew. It was Daniel's faith that enabled him to translate the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two and allowed him to ascend to the number two position in that empire. But it was that same faith that in this chapter gets him tossed into the lion's den. I'm so thankful for my own heritage that I was taught a through the Bible teaching because it forces you to not just choose the verses that you love and camp on them, it forces you to read and study the hard verses, the troubling ones, and that keeps your faith in the right, beautiful, brilliant tension that gives you life the way faith is supposed to. Is your faith tight? Does it have the right tension on it? It'll keep you from getting shipwrecked. It kept Daniel. So number one, faith is a tension. It's a tightrope. Number two, faith is a war. Look down at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... I love that. When Daniel knew this new law had come into pass, when Daniel knew this is the law of the land, and if you break it, you're going to the lion's den, when Daniel knew, when Daniel knew 
the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows. He didn't go into a house with no windows. He didn't hide in the basement. Where'd he go? Upper room in front of the window. And he prayed three times and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Faith fears no lion. In fact, when the lions come, faith makes you stand up because you know this is a war. And these guys, these other leaders, and we'll look at this on Wednesday a little bit more, they set a trap for him. They baited him with a trap. Is that happening today with people of faith? I think so. Have you heard of Jack Phillips, baker in Colorado, who in 2012 said, you know what? It goes against my morals to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. So he was sued for that, lost in a bunch of courts in Colorado. Um, Six years this goes by, and then finally it's taken up by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled he has a First Amendment right to his, what he says, right? The day that his case was taken up by the Supreme Court, that day, which is in 2017, a transgender lawyer came in and asked for a transgender cake to be made, which he refused. Lawsuit number two. Guess what they were saying to him? We're not going to give up. We're going to keep coming at you until we wear you out, until we take all your money. Until we, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you win here. We'll find another way at you. Is our faith going to be under attack? I think the Bible promises it. In this world, you will have Persecution, right? Faith is a war. Read church history for 2,000 years. Those that love Jesus have most often been on the wrong side of persecution, right? Let me read for you what Jesus says. It's Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed, it means happy, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what sake? Not because they're graceless jerks. For righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets who are before you. It's coming. A good question to think through when you read Daniel like this is this. If there is a 30-day moratorium on prayer, would it affect me? Would it affect you? Do we pray that often? Would that even cause anything to happen to us? Or are we more like Sweden, kind of neutral in this battle? Would people be able to, the people that know me, the people I work with, my neighbors, would they be able to trap me with my faith like they did to Daniel? They knew Daniel does this three times a day. Would people be able to trap me in my faith or am I in the secret service? Do they know me? If the Bible becomes hate speech, which there's been some interesting legislation. If the Bible becomes hate speech, does that affect my life? If evangelism becomes bigotry or intolerance, 
Will that change anything? Would laws against religion cost us anything? The moment this law goes into effect, what does Daniel do? Open window, I'm praying. Open window, I'm praying. And it got him in trouble. I think today, we have been so pushed out of the public square when it comes to our faith, when it comes to talking about these things, that we just don't do it anymore. It's like, keep that private, do that in your church over there, but don't bring this into our conversation. Don't bring this into your workplace. Don't bring this into your neighborhoods. Just keep it private. We've been so pushed out that now we're just kind of like, well, that's the way it is. Okay, no problem, right? We've been bullied. You see that video of the Philadelphia House of Representative guy bullying an old lady praying in front of a abortion clinic and then two teenage girls doxy them saying, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can tell me their addresses. Why? It's insanity. If that was any other religion, there would be a public outcry. But it's kind of okay right now. Christians, right? And part of it, I always want to look in the mirror. We've, we've earned some of that. So have you been to First Friday recently? Okay, there's some people on First Friday that I think, hmm. And a couple of years ago, I ran into them, actually. I was there with my family, packed out First Friday, walking along, have a French foreign exchange student that we're trying to share Jesus with in, in a different kind of way. And so we're walking along, and I see this guy, really energetic, really vocal. I'm thinking, what is his deal? And we're kind of walking and getting closer and closer. And then he turns around, squares up, gets me by the eye, and he comes up to me and he goes, do you know where you're going when you die? I'm thinking, why? Is that happening right now? <laughs> it turns out he wasn't a terrorist. He was a Christian. Okay. So I said, yes, I do. He said, where? I said, heaven. He said, why? I said, because God loves me and he wants me there. He went, are you sure? I said, yep. Why are you sure? I said, because God demonstrated his love toward me that while I was yet a sinner, a dirty, rotten, filthy, gross sinner, Christ died for me. And he just stared at me. Okay. <laughs> that was it. And then he turned to another guy. He's like, do you know where you're going when you die? And this guy said, yeah, bro as far away from you as possible. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes. We gotta look in the mirror and say, are our methods right? But the mistake is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's because we see people doing it wrong doesn't mean we say, well, we don't do this anymore. We have the gospel. You know what the gospel is? It's the good news. If you hear good news, what do you do with good news? You gotta share it with somebody, right? You gotta tell somebody it. And yet I think we've been duped by this little saying that says this, preach the gospel always. And when necessary, use words. Have you heard that? Oh, I don't like that saying. I mean, how would you do that? If you heard good news, and you didn't use words, how would you tell people the good news? Would you go into your living room and do a charade? No, right? It's ridiculous. And Romans 10, 14 says this, hey, how are they gonna believe unless somebody is sent? And how are they gonna be sent if we're not sending people? And how shall they hear 
unless somebody preaches. We're supposed to be preaching the good news. Yes, making sure we do it in a way that's Christ-like. Making sure we do it like it's Daniel-like. You know what? Daniel never did the crazy stuff. Daniel hears this law. He doesn't go protest in the street and yell and scream. Daniel lives his life in a beautiful way that is attractive and people know him and they know about him. And he's verbal when he needs to be. It's beautiful and it's right. He's velvet steel. And the moment this battle comes to him, what does Daniel do? He knows, 2 Corinthians 10, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We're not going and getting guns and gold and craziness and we're not protesting stuff. They're not carnal. They're not that stuff. He knows Ephesians 6 that we got to be armored up, right? You got to have the breastplate of righteousness, shoes shod with the gospel of peace. We need to have shields of faith and helmets of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and praying always. What does he do? He prays. Are we prayers? Daniel was three times a day praying. Do we pray for lost people? Do we pray for opportunities? Today, Jesus opened a door for me to share the good news with the people that I'm going to encounter. Do we pray that way? I think that's what Daniel did. He saw the war and he prayed. Faith is a war. Are we armored up? Ephesians 6. Are we ready for it? 2 Corinthians 10. Daniel was, because faith is a war. And thirdly and lastly, faith is the future. I got to piece this one out a little bit. Look at verse 10 first. When Daniel prays, where does he pray toward? Jerusalem, right? He opens his windows and he knows out there is this city that's called the city of God. And I'm going to focus my attention out there. And then when he's called to task, look at verse 13. They answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. You know how long Daniel had lived in Babylon? About 70 years at this point. What do they still call him? An exile of Judah. Why is that? Daniel may have lived in Babylon, but he lived for Jerusalem. He lived in the worst city the Bible has ever encountered. And yet, where was his heart the whole time? In God's city. Out there, I'm living for that. What do you live for? What does your heart live for? Colossians 3, one of the, for me, one of the most important texts for me, it's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And it's Paul saying this, hey, realize this, you have died with Christ. Something happened to you when you, when you died. Therefore, set your affections on things above. And Christ, who is your life, Christ, who is your life, he's going to bring you into his glory. To me, that was the most revolutionary little text I've encountered as a believer. It's learn to move your heart to heaven. Set your affections on things above. That's what Daniel was doing three times a day. I might live in Babylon, but my heart's in Jerusalem, the city of God. Because if you set your affections, if you set your heart on Babylon, set your heart on the stuff down here, guess what it does to you? 
it stomps on your heart. It's a roller coaster, right? It's never secure. It's up one minute, it's down another minute. I'll give you one example. Men and their athletic team, right? Every new season, it's, man, this is going to be the year. This is going to be the, the year. Finally, the Blazers are back in it. Yes, we'll take it, right? Or this is the year the Ducks will get their natty. I'm sure of it. Mario's got it, right? So that you get all, men get all hyped up with their team. That's why I love the Beavers. They never let me get hyped up. Just, <laughs> they cut it out in the beginning. I'm like, uh. Now, I hope they win one game. That'd be awesome. Be really happy then. Low expectations. Right? So they're all hyped up. I love my team. This is going to be the year. And then one, two, three, four weeks into the season. One, two, three, four losses into the season. How are they feeling? I hate them. They do this to me every year. They get me way up here and then they dash me on the rocks. Right? That's life. You set your affections on things below. That's what happens. You set your affection on things like athletics or applause or promotion or a person or money, guess what happens? It will bring you up and it will dash you on the rocks. And so what Colossians says is, stop being that kind of a person. Be like Daniel. Set your affections on something that's internal and lasting and will never dash yourself on the rocks. Your life is hid in Christ. Like this was a transformational verse for me. I mean, it was, it was, it's one of the most impacting things in my life personally. Because now here's what I know. Christ is my life. My life is not how beautiful this building was going to turn out. And it did. My life is not if you guys are like, hey, that was a great sermon today, Matt. I'm going to come back next week. That's not my life. I like that. I appreciate that. But that's not my life anymore. My life is Christ. It's solid. It's unchanging. I set my affections there, and it keeps me because my faith is about the future, right? So I've told people this a bunch of times. The first five years of Edgewater was this. When I would preach, it would be, like me, aren't I good? Roller coaster. Total roller coaster. Get a nasty email, be in the dirt for a while. Now I know, you know what? My life is not if people like my sermons. I like it when people like my sermons, but that is not my life. My life has been hid in Christ, and it's safe, and it's secure, and he is the satisfaction for my heart. He is the bread of life. He is the water that makes my soul never thirst, and just makes me even. My heart has been set on something that's truly bulletproof. That's what Daniel knew. He knew in, for, in order for me to live in Babylon for 70 years, I better have my heart in Jerusalem because that's my future, and that's my eternity, and that's what matters the most. So he can easily, no problem, go up into his window, open it wide open, and pray without worrying what people thought of him or the persecution that could come for him, because he didn't live in Babylon. He lived for Jerusalem. Who do you live for? That's what controls you. And anything in Babylon, anything on this earth is a roller coaster. That's all it is. Only when you set your heart on the city of God is it safe. Is it secure? Do you become bulletproof people's opinions? It'd be nice for them to love me, but it's not the end of the world. It's not my life. As believers, we're to be a group of people that say, 
Christ is my life. Christ is my life. That's the key. And so every Sunday, we come to the table. It's to remind us Christ is our life. This week may have been hard. Next week may have persecution. That does not matter. Christ is my life. My life is hid in him. He gives me my value. He gives me my worth. He is my strength. He is my power. He's my hero. And today, Sunday, at 10 o'clock, I'm recommitting myself to saying, Christ is my life. So we're going to take communion. And we're going to do it a little different. We have served communion before, and I like that, body serving the body. But for a season, we're going to try something else. And if you're at the 9 and 11, this will be new for you. But I think you're smart, and I think you'll figure it out. So we're going to pr- I'm going to pray. After I pray, the praise crew is going to come up. You're able to stand up. You walk, and you grab the elements, and you come sit back down, and then we take it together. I call this embodied remembrance. I'm not the only one that does. And what it means is this, you are now participating. You've heard the good news. You've heard about what faith is. And now you are physically having to stand up and walk and respond and take and eat, saying, I will now participate in what I've heard. It's not static anymore. It's not passive anymore. You're now saying, I'm going to walk and take and participate in this life that I've been called to. Make sense? So there's one here, there's a couple back there, couple back there, and one here. So figure out where you're at, grab it, come sit back down together, and as a body, we'll take it. So Jesus, may we have faith like Daniel. No matter what kind of workplace we're in or home we're in or neighborhood we're in or culture that we might be immersed in. May we live in it, but may we live for you, for New Jerusalem, for your city. May we know that our lives are hid in you. May this morning as we partake in the cup and the body, may we know that we've won the lottery, the cosmic lottery, the king of the universe, looks at us with pleasure, looks at us and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And may that protect us, may that make us bulletproof to Babylon. And we ask this in your name, amen.